is a chukat. Chukat means a statute or decree. Sometimes we'll see it as chukot, the chukot of Adonai, the, the statutes or decrees. And uh, three chapters in Numbers this week. Numbers 19 has the infamous uh, red heifer reference there. And if you were to go home and Google red heifer, boy, you'd be surprised. Um, there's all kinds of stuff, people trying to figure out what exactly is the perfect red heifer. Um, though you'll see articles of, you know, well, we found the perfect red heifer. We found it now. People searching for, for this particular specimen. And then the question is, well, what does that mean? Is, does, this, does this point to uh, the last days, the end times? What does it say about, about prophecy? Um, is that a requirement? Is finding the perfect red heifer specimen even a requirement? Uh, as a precursor to rebuilding of the third temple uh, in Jerusalem, and so on, and so on, and so on. So I'll answer all those questions for you with certainty here before we're done. Um, actually, uh, I'm going to refer you again. In terms of the, some of the facts in, of the matter, uh, the things that we do know, I will refer you to the back of the, or the inside last cover of the bulletin. There's some things there that you know we do know, um, and, and Rabbi Chaim does a good job of talking about about those things. Um, and it's interesting, chukat, chukat. Um, uh, in Judaism, that word also can can has been made reference to by the rabbis as those are laws and statutes of God, and these are the ones that defy rational explanation. Because um, there's other words, you know, it's not just Torah. There's Torah, there's Chukat, there's other words for statutes, commands, and so forth. Um, but Chukat are the ones, that, these, are the, these are the ones that defy rational explanation. And I kind of find that ironic because if you were to uh, study this, you'll find that there's all kinds of explanations that the rabbis do come up with. Uh, whether or not they're, they're rational or not, I don't know, but they have plenty of them for sure. But the big picture of uh, the beginning of this parsha, the big picture, if you were to kind of zoom out and not get too worked up with, you know, is the red heifer perfect, and what does all that mean? The big picture is uh, about ritual uncleanness, specifically by way of touching a dead body, being in a tent with a dead body, having a, a, a vessel of water that's near a dead body that's been in the same tent but has been left uncovered, uh, touching a bone of a dead person, a grave, or someone you find dead in the field. These are things that happen to us all the time. Maybe some of our occupations, we might run into this, but most of us probably aren't uh, running into dead bodies in the field. Um, so anyways, uh, any one of those things would have caused ritual defilement for one week, and the person or the vessel would need to be purified, and then the, that's where the ashes of the red heifer come in, because they would need to then be purified by the, the ashes of the red heifer twice, and then once on the, the third day, and then again on the seventh day. Um, otherwise, there was a stiff penalty. There was, so there's something, this is not something, even though we have lots of questions, just to pass over, although we don't have all the answers and know everything, the fact is the penalties were pretty stiff in terms of if you did not follow these, this chukat, uh, that you would be cut off from the community, which is the, the biggest thing. I mean, that's a huge, that basically means death. It's the same as death when you're cut off. Uh, you can't just sort of move to the next town and be accepted and go to the local Walmart and things like that. It doesn't quite work that way. So it is a big deal. Uh, chapter 20 uh, we see that Moses and Aaron are uh, blamed for the lack of water, a lack of water in the wilderness. That's reasonable. I mean, we're in the desert, and it's your fault that we don't have any water, right? Um, being sarcastic there. But beyond that, they're complaining about the water, but beyond that we see in chapter 20, they just start what I call gunny sacking. They've kind of got a, a sack they've kind of maybe kept on their waist there of not just the water, but here's all the other things I've been storing up for you. And by the way, in addition to not having water, let me tell you everything else 
that I've felt has been wrong with you, and uh, all these other irrelevant, stored-up complaints they kind of throw at Moses and Aaron. And Moses and Aaron, we see that they take the issue to God. In fact, what they do is pretty amazing when you read it. Uh, They go to God, and they don't even say anything. It says they simply fall down on their faces. Um, Obviously, God knows what's going going on here. It's not that it's unknown, you know, but they they didn't have to say anything, but they didn't. They didn't go and say, do you hear this? You know, they just go, they fall on their faces. And you see uh, an epiphany or a theophany there where God appears to them. The glory of the Lord appears to them, and he gives them a solution. I think it's a good lesson for us um, because criticism will always come. Some fair criticism will come your way. In other words, there might be some truth to it. Um, uh, And then there's going to be some unfair criticism that comes your way. But I think the lesson here is that we don't jump to our own defense or call down curses upon people. Often our prayers quickly become, you know, take care of them, Lord, and justify me and smite them and this kind of stuff. Um, But I think that's not necessarily what we need to do to jump to to those conclusions or those actions. Um, asking God to fix the situation or to justify us, but do what we see Moses and Aaron doing here, which is simply humbling themselves before God, realizing that he does see everything and that he knows the score. So on the flip side, uh, we have the what I would call the failure of Moses because God gives him a solution, and although he tells him to speak to the rock or the cliff, uh, as, as it says in Hebrew, that water will come out, Moses decides to embellish it a little bit. Uh, speaking to the rock wouldn't necessarily be all that exciting. And besides, back f- further back in Exodus in chapter 7, you know, God told him to strike the rock, uh, and, it, it, and it worked then, so why not do it now? Plus, it'll probably feel good hitting the rock, you know, vent, get a little, let a little steam off, right? So Moses, before he does that, has a few choice words for the people. He calls them rebels um, and then hits the rock, and that really ends up being um, Moses' uh, beginning of the end for Moses, his downfall as well as the precursor to Aaron uh, dying. Interestingly, we see uh, in, in verse 13 of chapter 20, God's perspective of this whole thing. Um, and he says, you know, these are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with Moses and Aaron. But it doesn't say that. It says, this is where the people quarreled with the Lord. That's the perspective on it. In other words, the people had an issue with God, not Moses, although Moses and Aaron kind of seemed like they were the recipients of it, um, and they didn't see it that way. Maybe he was upset, Moses, about the death of his sister, which is also in this chapter. But at the end of the day, he took matters into his own hands, and he paid dearly for it. <clears throat> and I think, again, there's a practical lesson for us here because, you know, we realize just how quickly and easily we can slip up, right? Um, and we can get upset. We can get upset regardless of the reason. It might be what's actually going on, but it might be the fact that you had a loved one die just recently, perhaps, and then something else happened, and, and it kind of comes out in that situation. But, the, but regardless of what the reason is, uh, we're held accountable for our actions, you know? I think about uh, you know, road rage. How many road rage articles do you see nowadays? I saw one the other day, the guy, you probably saw the guy who's riding a motorcycle, and he kicks, you know, the car, and then he swerves, and the car swerves, hits a jersey bit because the car swerves into him, and then it's like a three-car pileup and a wreck, and people's lives are changed, and, and traffic has changed. It's unbelievable. Um, radically changed people's lives. And, you know, your actions bear consequences. And on another level, it's great that Moses went to God first, and that should be the model for us also. But beyond that, we need to trust him uh, We need to trust him for the answer because he wasn't silent. God did give his instructions, and we need to be careful and and listen. Um, So there was still something Moses had to do, even though God gave him the answer. And sometimes we want God just to come down and strike everybody and fix everything up. But again, he he has answers, but sometimes they require some some action, and it did in Moses' situation. 
But unfortunately for Moses, and often for us, we, we try to take the plans. Maybe we, we think we know them, but we like to, we want to put a little spin on it, you know, just add a little person, that personal touch, right? This is America. Let me add my own little personal touch on God's plan here. Um, because, you know, although the situation seemed to be the same as what we saw in Exodus 7 with the water, the truth is that God wants obedience. He doesn't want us to be formulaic. You know, this worked before. Let's just do it again. This is the recipe. I figured out the recipe. It could be different in different situations. So chapter 20 ends with the death of Aaron. And the text tells us that it was, Moses's, uh, it was due to Moses' rebellion, clear, clear uh, result of Moses' rebellion, the death of, his, of Aaron. And in verse 24, uh, interestingly enough, Moses is now called the rebel. God calls him the rebel. The same word that Moses shouted at the people before striking the rock is now what, what God calls him. It's kind of ironic. It's a very graphic scene here at the end of chapter 20. You may kind of gloss over it, but, you know, Moses knows his brother Aaron is going to die. That is, that is clearly told to him. But he has to then strip him of his clothes, not, not undress him necessarily, but aggressively, you know, not like take your stuff off, but like aggressively, like imagine like ripping a, a sergeant's patch off or something or deranking somebody or something. He's got to aggressively do that, walk up the mountain with him, and then watch him die. And imagine that. Watch and. and and all because, again, it was, it's not that, oh, boy, poor Aaron messed up. No, you messed up. And you had to strip him of his clothes, walk up the mountain, and watch him die. In chapter 21, um, the last thing that I want to highlight in the section which I chose to read verses from today uh, is here in chapter 21. And once again, the people are, are griping and complaining that there's no food and there's no water in the wilderness. Now, well, there's, nothing, there's nothing to eat. I've not heard that at my house before. I don't have a... Clearly, there was food and water in the wilderness. They weren't dead, right? And there is food in the house. It's just ingredients, maybe. I don't know what to do with these ingredients. But there's food in the house, right? They would have been dead. So they, they, they were just disgruntled, okay? They were, they were hydrated, and they had nutrition. Um, so the Lord sends poisonous snakes among them, and the people begin to get bit and die. And they cry out to Moses, and they confess their sins against him and against God. So Moses intercedes, he prays for the people, he spares, and God spares the people by way of this most unusual remedy. Uh, he has Moses make a, a snake, fashions a snake out of bronze, puts it on a pole, and then he instructs the people who have been bitten to simply look at the snake and they'll not die. It's very interesting, the text doesn't say that the snakes were taken away <clears throat> or that their mouths were shut. Um, it seems to be that the snakes were still there, the people were still getting bitten, but only God provided a remedy in the midst of it. And absent, absent the New Testament scriptures and New Covenant scriptures, I believe it's, it's a pretty re- weird ritual. I don't know about you. Just, okay, you guys get bit by snakes. I'm thinking, well, let's do some snake traps. Okay, dig a pit, climb up, do something. No, you put the snake on a pole and look at it. Really? You know, that, that, that's the plan, right? It's a very strange ritual. But in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 3, verse 14, so this is John 3, not 16, but 3, 14 to 15, right before, for God so loved the world. It says, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And the same picture as was seen in the wilderness is the same picture that we see for salvation. The same picture of this whole scenario is that there's repentance, there's instruction, and then there's a promise as to what will happen from God. And then there's belief that by following that instruction, and in this case looking to the the sign of faith first, looking to that sign that, that was there, then deliverance comes. So repentance, instruction, a promise, belief, and then deliverance comes. So I chose to read these verses, uh, the, the, the snake kind of image um, of God's salvation in the wilderness because of that clear parallel with the deliverance that God does provide through Yeshua.